Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met John Boehner when I was the senior advisor to President Barack Obama, and Boehner was the House Republican leader way back in the turbulent teens. Now Boehner is retired from politics and has plenty to say in his new book, On the House, a Washington Memoir. I caught up with him last week to speak to him about his life and career and his Republican Party's journey from Reagan to Trump. Here's that conversation. Speaker John Boehner, good to see you again. David, good to see you. Author John Boehner, I should say. Great new best-selling book, number one, I'm told, On the House, a Washington memoir. Very Boehner-esque effort on your part. You kind of let it rip, and it's a, good, it's a really good read. Well, I wanted it to, to sound like me. I wanted it to be me, and it turned out to be me. <laughs> uh, I thought I had a pretty interesting life, very interesting career, and uh, I thought I could tell a pretty good story, and uh, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, well, you certainly can. So I want to start at, uh, there's a lot of great stuff in here, but you just have to explain to me, 12 kids, two bedrooms, one bathroom. H- how does that work? That was you growing up. The boys were in one room, the girls in the other, and my parents for about 15 years, slept on a pull-out couch in the living room. And then uh, finally, uh, it just wasn't enough room, and my parents added three bedrooms, and, uh, and my grandmother moved in. So my <laughs> parents had a bedroom, my grandmother had a bedroom, the girls had a bedroom, the older boys in one bedroom, the younger boys in the next bedroom. And uh, they didn't sleep on a couch anymore, but we only had one bathroom. And as literally, as I was writing the book, I began to ponder something. And I, and I finally realized I don't ever recall getting out of the bathtub or the shower and drying off with a dry towel. <laughs> the only question was, how damp was it? <laughs> yeah, well, one thing that no one can question is your Catholicism. I think 12 Kids sort of answers the question there. Oh, yeah. You're from Reading, Ohio, near Cincinnati, large German-American community there. Your family came from Germany. Your great-grandfather? Uh, great-grandfather. And frankly, uh, my grandmother on my dad's side uh, came from Germany. And even when I was a young boy, before she passed away, uh, she spoke uh, what I would call very broken English. You could have been in the Saxon part of the Anglo-Saxon caucus <laughs> in Congress. What do you, what would you make of that? The America First caucus that had about a twenty-four hour life. That was, was a pretty nutty idea, uh, and I'm glad it disappeared as quickly as it showed up. There is a sort of amen corner in the, you know, on Fox and in the media, you know, Tucker and talking about replacement and and so on. Talk to me about that and kind of what has happened to the Republican Party. It's become sort of a nativist party. I remember when George W. Bush was pushing for immigration reform. Oh, yeah, I do, too. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, These people, uh, talk radio hosts, some of these TV people, uh, are always pushing pushing the envelope, all fighting for a bigger audience. And, uh, and they, they look into dark corners that I would never have been known existed. Now, looking for uh, some, some, another angle to build their audience. And they just keep getting nuttier and nuttier. Simple as that. You've said in some of these interviews, you're doing a lot of interviews around this book, that failure to deal with the immigration issue was one of your big uh, regrets. 
Back in 2013, the Senate passed a comprehensive immigration reform bill, 68 votes, 14 Republicans voted for it, and you never brought it up for a vote in the House. It would have passed, wouldn't it, if, if you had put it on the floor? Oh, it would have passed, but about two-thirds of my members would have been ready to kill me. And, uh, and so I was trying to find a way to get there where we didn't set the whole institution on fire. And uh, the challenge I had was that I had a chairman of uh, the relevant committee who wouldn't act. I don't say he couldn't act, he wouldn't act. And, uh, and frankly, every time I got close to, to some agreement to try to do something, President Obama would go off and, and light the fires uh, on uh, whether it was DACA or some other effort that just really would light up some of the Republican base. And uh, it was always, frankly, too hot to handle. And so uh, it's a real regret, but it is what it is. It does speak to the limitations you felt as speaker. And you kind of talk about it in your book. You were the guy with the gavel, but you weren't necessarily the guy with the power. That's right. I was never into the power thing to begin with. But uh, having said that, when you become a speaker, you've got some power. Uh, but uh, there, there's always limits to how much power you have. And, uh, you know, there's a story in the book about uh, Michelle Bachman, uh, one of my nuttier members uh, uh, from Minnesota who wanted to be on the Ways and Means Committee. Well, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, but she was a media darling, and, uh, and the conservative media loved her. And if I didn't find some way to take care of her, she was going to drag my, my name through the mud every single night on Fox or on one of these talk radio shows. And so uh, I finally uh, convinced her that a seat on the Intelligence Committee was a, was a better opportunity for her. And, I mean, she had me, uh, she had me right by the ankle. She had the power, not me. Yeah. We'll talk more about that. I wanna, uh, let's just get back to your story for a second. Tell me about Andy's Cafe and the role that that played in your life and, and, and your family. My grandfather started this uh, tavern. Uh, either right before Prohibition ended or just after. I don't know. It's a little murky. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we started this tavern and uh, uh, ran a good place. Well, we had the coldest beer in town. And uh, my dad and my two uncles, after uh, World War II, uh, went in and uh, uh, worked with my grandfather at the bar. And then he, he kind of went off and left it to the three of them. And he started another place. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I was about eight years old, I'd get up with my dad on Saturday morning about quarter to five. And, uh, you know, by five o'clock, we were at Andy's Cafe, starting to mop the floors, do the windows, uh, clean things up from the night before. And uh, I'd work there until about two o'clock in the afternoon when my dad went home, all for $2. <laughs> Not $2 an hour, for $2. You know, you grew up around a bar. Uh, you learn a lot of things. You learn the art of being able to disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> and all that drunk to be sitting there all night. You don't want to fight with a guy, but you don't want to agree with him. Uh, the other thing you learn is to deal with every jackass who walks in the door. Uh, all the lessons I needed to learn to become speaker. <laughs> you you went to Muller High School, which is a famous football factory, and you played football. I played football there. Actually, won more baseball titles and basketball titles than we ever did football titles. Uh, but uh, it's a great school. A thousand, thousand boys from the north and northeast part of Cincinnati. And uh, it was a great place, great place for me to grow up. You played for uh, Jerry Faust, who went on to be the coach at Notre Dame. Sure did. And, uh, and we're still friends to this day. Great guy. I also read that you were... Two set two hundred and seventy three pounds. Is that right? Could that be? That was post high school. Uh, when I was playing, I was about uh, about two twenty five, pretty quick, uh, very strong. Uh, but you know, uh, and I just kept eating. <laughs> there were no more sports. <laughs> oh boy, I got uh, I got I swelled up pretty good. That's how you started smoking. I did. I I decided. All right, I'm gonna eat, eat three reasonable meals a day. And if I think I'm hungry between meals, I'm going to have a cigarette. And uh, that's what I did. And over eight years, I lost about 80 pounds. I got rid of one bad habit and picked up another. <laughs> and you also, you uh, screwed up your back playing football, joined the military, 
your back bounce you out of the military. Bounce me out of the military and still have the same back problems today. How does it affect your swing? Well, uh, some uh, some days uh, there is no swing. <laughs> I went through a two-month period uh, after Thanksgiving where I had problems with my low back, uh, and injections, chiropractor, there was no golf. I, would, I couldn't even think about playing golf. But I got that all healed up temporarily, and hopefully it'll stay healed up. But you know what was uh, striking is uh, through all that you you uh, you worked construction, you did root, you work you worked your way through college, some of which doing that work. David, there was not a job that I didn't have uh, somewhere along the way. Uh, you know when I was growing up, if you could shovel snow and make a buck, you did. Uh, I worked in my dad's bar. Uh, I cut uh, grass if I had to cut grass. I worked for a stonemason uh, carrying stones uh, uh, one summer. I drove trucks, uh, heavy equipment, bulldozers, pavers. Worked for two different roofing companies. Uh, but uh, there was never a day in my life I didn't have a job uh, until I retired from Congress. As I say, you worked your way, Xavier University, went there at nights, worked your way up from a janitorial position to a sales position at a pharmaceutical company, and then you got hooked on with a small manufacturing company and you worked your way up to become the president of that company. Well, I bought that. I bought that company and uh, we were in the packaging and plastics business. Uh, and I, frankly, I was, uh, I was the sales guy. So all I really wanted to be in life was the salesman and the uh, company was doing well. And uh, we moved into a new neighborhood and uh, somebody got me involved in our neighborhood homeowners association. Yes. I see it on the speaker of the house. It's like, what happened to my career? What happened to my business? <laughs> well, what's remarkable to me, because I was the uh, chairman of a uh, chairman of the or president of a, a condo association, and there was nothing about that that would have encouraged me to get into politics. It was a miserable experience. But, <laughs> uh, but you, uh, you went from there to a township trustee, state rep, and then Congress. You had no inkling about politics before that? I mean, had it ever crossed your mind? No, never crossed my mind at all. Never. Yeah. Your folks were Democrats. Yeah, we grew up in a, you know, a Kennedy Democrat household, but there was never any politics discussed in our house. None. We just assumed we were Democrats. And what happened? They dropped you on your head or I, what happened? No, no. You know, <laughs> uh, 1972, George McGovern, uh, Richard Nixon, I couldn't vote for McGovern. I, happen. And in 1976, I thought Jerry Ford was a good guy. I wasn't a big fan of Jimmy Carter. And, and uh, by 1978, uh, Ronald Reagan came along and I was, uh, I thought, now this is my guy. So I became a Republican. You got elected to Congress and your dad died a few weeks after you got elected to Congress. Correct. What did it mean to your family uh, to see that day? I mean, uh, how did they react? They were there that night that I got elected, both the primary and the general. Uh, they were real proud of their number two son. My mother was there when I was sworn into office uh, in January. My father passed in the middle of December. Uh, but, you know, it was a big moment for the family. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine a long way from the 6 a.m. shift at Andy's. Yeah. Uh, you got to Congress, and by the time you left Congress, you were uh, denounced by the younger members as a uh, as an icon of the establishment when you went to congress you were all over the establishment you were you were a rabble rouser you were a pain pain in the ass to to them oh yeah both sides of the aisle uh, but you know uh, i went there to do something I, I didn't plan on being a big performer of the institution uh, but when you saw how pathetic the institution was being run uh, it was one thing after another, a house bank scandal, a house restaurant scandal, house post office scandal. Uh, never been a, an audit of the house's books in its history. And uh, so, you know, focusing in on, on cleaning up the institution uh, ended up being about a four or six year. Well, actually, for me, it was a 25 year project. It was it was an interesting uh, some of these uh, anecdotes from there were interesting to me you know the bank scandal you had people basically overdrawing their accounts and no one would 
enforce it. The restaurant scandal was they'd have meals at the house restaurant, wouldn't pay their tabs. And the post office, you write about Dan Rostenkowski, who I knew quite well uh, in Chicago, and uh, who would get stamps. And the stamps, you'd get stamps from the house post office, and then you could use them as currency, essentially, for whatever you wanted. Well, there were a lot of poker games uh, that were played with uh, stamps. And uh, under the post office regulations, you can't sell your stamps back to the post office. Uh, but this post office, they would buy your stamps back. So if you won big in the poker game the night before, you could go down to the house post office and cash your stamps in, and now you got real money. So talk to me a little bit about Rostenkowski, because, you know, I was called in. Uh, the, the mayor the White House asked me to help him when he, uh, when he was in some distress there in the early 90s, distress partly because of the stuff that you uh, were doing. And um, what I found was he was a— an incredibly interesting guy, uh, you know, very passionate about about stuff, but was very old school. You write here that, you know, people live through generations and the mores change, the rules change, and they don't change. Yeah, Rusty was a great guy, good member, uh, well-liked. Uh, hell, I love the guy. Knew how to work across the aisle uh, when he really didn't even have to. But, you know, when these things start to unfold, you don't know who's in the middle of them. And it wasn't until this House post office scandal had erupted uh, that it became clear in the investigation that Rusty uh, got caught up in this thing. And then, you know, once it all was over and done with, it was pretty clear to me that Rusty was living under a set of rules uh, from the 1950s when he first got involved in politics. Charlie Mangle, same thing. Uh, you know, he was New York City, but basically followed the same rules uh, and never changed. And the rules over time, obviously, have changed significantly. One of the things that you uh, waged a long campaign against were earmarks. Uh, and I have to tell you, when I came to Washington, you know, I was on that side of the discussion. I've had second thoughts about it. but And I'm wondering if you have or whether you still feel the same way. They were being abused. They were tools of leadership. And there were needs in districts that people could fulfill. It, it didn't have to be for private gain or perhaps we deprived you as speaker, the president, as president, the leader, the, the Senate uh, majority leader of tools that they could use. I fought for banning earmarks uh, almost from the time I got there. And it started uh, in my primary election in the 1990s. Somebody at some event, some meeting, uh, asked me, uh, about earmarks. And I said, if you think my job is to go to Washington and rob the federal treasury uh, on your behalf, you're voting for the wrong guy. I meant it. I said it. I went to Washington and there were all these bills chock full of earmarks. And uh, and then over time, you know, an earmark in and of itself, is not, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, somebody's got to decide how we're going to spend this money. Uh, but uh, over time, it was just one example after another of uh, really what I'll call wasteful spending in many cases. And then you began to realize over time that there was some corruption here. Uh, you know, some people paying a member for an earmark with a couple of members go to jail. Uh, and then uh, by the time I became the minority leader, uh, I had stumbled across uh, all kinds of smelly activities, not, not illegal, uh, but who got the earmarks and how much people got. Uh, frankly, the leaders took most of the money and the chairman took most of the money and the members got crumbs. Uh, the whole thing was pathetic. And so uh, when I became speaker, I just made it clear. In the opening day uh, rules package, there were going to be no more earmarks. And there, no, there have been no earmarks over the last uh, 10 years, 11 years. And so uh, they're going to bring them back. It's just a matter of time before it blows up in somebody's face once again, uh, because uh, there's just not enough transparency and openness in terms of how this is all dealt with. So you would you would not support bringing them back in any form or fashion? No. I, I, if I thought, and I told the members, if you find a way that's fair, that's open, uh, I'll consider it. Because, again... Uh, there's no reason to leave all these decisions to the administration. Congress ought to have some role here. Now, they could 
rewrite the authorization bills in a different way. Uh, but that was like too much like work. Uh, so, uh, but nobody ever presented a plan that uh, made any sense at all. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. One of the guys who inspired you to run for Congress and with whom you became associated closely politically was Newt Gingrich. You listened to tapes as you were commuting from Columbus back home of Gingrich uh, encouraging people to run for office. And that was one of the reasons you ran. When you got there, you know, you were there when Gingrich became speaker and you rose with him. I did. You became the, the, the number four guy. Uh, in the Republican caucus, you, the, the the chair of the caucus. And then Gingrich crashed, and you kind of crashed with him. You slid down the pole. He couldn't get the votes to be speaker in 1999, and so he left uh, at the end of 1998. Uh, but the members were the members were pissed. Uh, this was the Bill Clinton impeachment uh, that they thought the leadership had mishandled, which I say in the book we did. And they, they wanted somebody's hit. So they, uh, Newt left. They still were angry. They tried to get Army, tried to get Delay. Uh, missed them both narrowly. But boy, they got me. And, uh, and the pro earmark crowd <laughs> led the way in getting rid of me, all right? Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was in the wilderness, 1999, 2000. I, I had to start all over. Uh, and, uh, you know, in 2001, I became chairman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. I worked closely with Ted Kennedy and No Child yeah. Left Behind and a bunch of other bills. And, uh, and in 2006, when DeLay stepped down, uh, I ran for majority leader and, and beat uh, one Roy Blunt, who just announced his retirement. Yeah. Well, it worked out for everybody. Yeah. I guess my question is about Gingrich and what your sense of him is, you know, he uh, of, of his tenure as a speaker, of his role in provoking the moment that we're in now and the role that he's playing now because he became a full-throated cheerleader for Trumpism. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't watch news on TV, so I'm not really sure what, what he said over the last four or five years. I really don't even have a clue. But, you know, working with Newt, he uh, was a really bright guy, very yes, intellectual. Uh, but it was like working next to a tornado. You never knew what was going to fly out of there and hit you upside the head. <laughs> You know, I spent most of my time cleaning up, cleaning up, uh, you know, Newt's uh, uh, pronouncements and, uh, you know, like uh, getting off of the back of Air Force One after uh, a funeral in Israel uh, when he went over with Bill Clinton. Uh, I got a whole long list of missteps uh, that uh, had to be cleaned up. But hey, listen, he was a hell of a leader, a really hell of a leader. Well, I had to look him in the eye and say, Newt. I think you've led the team as far as you can lead. It's time to go. Well, it was, that was not easy to do, but somebody had to be open, upfront, and honest and tell it. And how do you react to that? Oh, well, I'm sure he didn't like it. Uh, but, uh, you know, when somebody's your friend, you, they deserve, and you should, you should be, you're required to tell them the truth. And I did. You know, I ask you what his role in the moment we live in is because he brought a much more uh, kind of uh, confrontational style uh, to the Congress. You, you talked about working with Ted Kennedy and George Miller, uh, you know, obviously iconic progressives uh, to reach uh, an agreement on, on, on education legislation like No Child Left Behind. Could you do that today? Is that possible today to have those kinds of relationships in the Congress? Or would you be punished for that? I think it's possible. I think it would probably take a little more courage uh, to do it uh, now as opposed to 20 years ago. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was in all kinds of heat uh, for a while because I was working with Ted Kennedy and George Miller. And my Republican colleagues just could not fathom uh, how I could work with those guys. Uh, but I told George and I told uh, uh, Teddy, I said, listen, uh, if we get uh, worried about this group and that group, we're never going to get uh, to an end. If we keep focused on what's in the best interest of our kids, we will, we will resolve this. 
And I, you know, I, I'd have to say it about once every day to remind them, we have to stay focused on the kids. Uh, and as a result, it was all about the kids. And, uh, and it, it enabled us to get uh, to a conclusion. And frankly, a good one to bring more accountability to what was happening in the classrooms. I uh, worked closely with Arnie Duncan at the time, who was uh, head of the Chicago school system, uh, trying his best uh, to bring more accountability uh, into the classroom. It's doable. It's very doable. Talk to me about uh, about Kennedy. Talk to me about some of the folks you worked with who you, as people uh, on either side, like who are the best people that you worked with? Who are the people who impressed you the most? And it's pretty clear from the book that you've got a long list of people who didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, uh, you know, on the education and workforce issues, uh, George Miller, big liberal from California, Teddy Kennedy, we had great relationships. Uh, but Judd Gregg and I did a lot. He was part of uh, mm-hmm. the four of us, put this bill together. Republican in New Hampshire, yeah. And uh, Jeff was a great guy. Uh, Joe Lieberman and I did uh, all kinds of education things together for disadvantaged kids. Uh, uh, we co-chaired a, a dinner. First, it was Kennedy and I. Then it was Lieberman and I. And then uh, after Lieberman left, it was Diane Feinstein and I, uh, who hosted his dinner for about 15 years, uh, raising money for uh, poor kids uh, in the District of Columbia. Uh, but, uh, you know, I served on the Agriculture Committee for many years. And so, you know, Jesse Helms, Al Heflin, there were a whole host of characters on the Senate side. Now, on the House side, you know, there, were, there was an endless stream. When you get to the House Agriculture Committee, uh, Charlie Stenholm uh, was the chairman for, for a while. Good guy. Uh, did a lot of work with him. Colin Peterson from uh, uh, northern Minnesota, uh, who just lost uh, in, in 2020. But uh, Colin was a blue dog Democrat. Uh, he had different ideas about agriculture than I did, but it didn't matter. We trusted each other. We did a lot of work together. Uh, but uh, on any given issue, you know, there I have members on both sides of the aisle that I can work with. Yeah. How's it different now? Well, I don't know that the members know each other as well as they did, especially with what's happened uh, with COVID. And, uh, you know, they're not together. They're not in committee meetings. Uh, they just don't have the relationships uh, that they used to have. Now, you know, all that started to break down about 1990. Uh, but uh, that's why I asked you about Gingrich. That's about yeah. when he started rising. Today, it's uh, today it's a lot worse. Members, not many members live in D.C. with their families. Uh, they don't spend as much time in D.C. And so members don't know each other as well as they used to. Uh, but having said that, you know, if people are there uh, for the right reasons, uh, you know, they can find a way to work together. Now, there is a complication now that there wasn't for most of my tenure, and that is uh, all these outside pressures. You know, talk radio became, uh, you know, a really big thing in the in the, the 2000s, maybe the late 90s. Uh, then all those cable news channels uh, became nothing but political pundits 24-7. And then uh, the internet comes along and all these social media platforms, and all of a sudden, all this information that the American people are getting a hundred times more than they ever got 30 years ago, uh, was pushing people or pulling people into one of two corners, you know, the far left and the far right. Uh, and today, because there's so much news, people get to choose where they get their news. Well, what do they, where do they go? They go places they agree with, reinforcing the divide in the country. And so, uh, uh, and there's another factor, uh, and that is the speed at which people get news. Uh, Dave, do you remember that back uh, back in the old days, you know, uh, there'd be an article every once in a while in the Sunday paper uh, about politics. Uh, maybe in the Chicago Tribune, every couple of days, there'd be some political article. Uh, but uh, today, everything's instantaneous. And so, uh, you know, you can cut a deal uh, on a piece of legislation, come to an agreement, and uh, but you don't have, you have no time to get a pass before everybody knows about it. And people are poking holes in it, and people are taking sides, and the noise being turned up. So the speed at which people get news uh, is also influencing this. But here's the real problem today. 
both parties are being held hostage by the loudest voices in their party. And on the Republican side would be the, uh, what I'll call the Trumpers. And then you've got the progressives on the far left. Now, if Joe Biden literally sat down with Mitch McConnell to work out, I don't care, any of it. My God, the far left would go crazy. The far right would go crazy. Uh, it, it would be hilarious to watch. Uh, but uh, they're all being held hostage. It's really unbelievable. When you were a speaker, you met in secret with the president, with President Obama, which is sort of related to this point. Why, why did you feel you had to do that? Well, if I went in there the way I used to go in there, the right-wing press would go crazy. Oh, my God, Boehner's at the White House. What's he going to give away to Obama? And how the left-wing press would go crazy on Obama going, oh, my God, here's Boehner. He's going to roll the president again. And, and then, you know, they're going to hound everybody uh, that the president and I know or work with until they ferret out what the hell we actually talked about. I really, uh, uh, it was very difficult to just sit down with the president and try to resolve a few things. Tell me about your relationship with him. I sat in a few of the bipartisan uh, meetings uh, with the president and you guys. You know, I remember him saying to me, I, I, I think I know Boehner because he's a lot a lot like the guys I serve with in, in gals, but in the state Senate in Illinois. You know, he's a guy who he had a, he had a business, chamber of commerce type guy. Has, you know, I, I, I get all that. And he, he, that was his measure of you. But what was your measure of him? Well, listen, we are about as different as any two people you're going to find. You know, his education versus my education, how I grew up and how I grew up, my business background, his, uh, his background. And so uh, you couldn't find any people more different, nor uh, could you find people uh, who uh, philosophically were on, on polar opposites. Uh, but... Uh, uh, listen, I was speaker. He was president. The American people didn't care whether he was a Democrat and I was a Republican. They expected that we would work it out. We'd figure it out. And uh, so I worked, frankly, overtime at developing my relationship with the president. I was very respectful, very straightforward. Uh, you know, we, we had a few bumps along the way. Uh, but uh, we've had a good relationship then. We have a good relationship today. You guys played golf together? Played golf together one time. I'll never forget the morning I announced my retirement. I get back to the office and uh, and uh, there's a whole stack whole stack of uh, phone messages. You know, that's what used to happen. And uh, top one was from George W. Bush. I called him and, and uh, you know, he wanted me to come down to Texas so he could whip my butt on the golf course. <laughs> uh, but the second one was from uh, President Obama. So I called him and he said, you can't do this. You can't do this. We got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do this. We got to do that. You, you can't leave. <laughs> so, uh, Mr. President, guess what? I'm leaving. <laughs> well, one person we haven't talked about is Nancy Pelosi. You're, for the first anecdote in your book is about her. Talk to me about her, because my impression was that you guys, you know, had a productive relationship. Absolutely. Well, you know, in the back of my book are a list of Bainerisms. Yes. Things that I would say a lot. My staff start calling them Bainerisms. <laughs> and um, there's a whole list of them back there. But one of them, one of them is it doesn't cost anything to be nice. And, uh, you know, I don't care. Democrat, Republican, not even some of the knuckleheads. It's nice to all of them. And, uh, you know, a Midwest guy, uh, Midwest folks tend to be friendly and and, uh, and so anyway, I was always nice to Nancy Pelosi. She was always nice to me. Again, we didn't agree on a whole lot uh, from a policy standpoint. Another Bainerism, you can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Nancy and I uh, had a nice relationship. And you know, when we had the chance to work together, uh, she had good staff. I had good staff. And uh, frankly, our offices had a very good relationship with each other. How, how do you assess her? as speaker and, and her place in history? Well, uh, she is the first woman speaker. Uh, but more importantly, as I say in the book, uh, you know, she might be uh, the most powerful speaker of my lifetime. I mean, she, uh, she's done a good job of holding her caucus together. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts uh, because she's going through <laughs> uh, over the last couple of years and 
uh, these next couple of years. She's gone through what I went through in, in 20, uh, 2012, 2013, 2014, that era, uh, with the Tea Party and the, the knuckleheads. Uh, she's starting to have her, her challenges from uh, the far left. Uh, but uh, uh, she's done a very good job. I, I tell a story in a book about uh, Henry Waxman challenging John Dingle, yeah. the chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. I mean, Dingle was one powerful guy and, frankly, one well-liked guy. And, uh, and Waxman had been waiting and waiting and waiting for Dingle to, uh, uh, to retire and to leave because he was the number two guy on the committee. And so uh, when Nancy became speaker, uh, Waxman all of a sudden announces a challenge to Dingle. Well, you know, nobody thought Waxman had a prayer. When I say no, we all find out Waxman uh, won the internal election in their caucus, which, which told me that, uh, that Nancy must have uh, given the, the nod, the wink, or whatever. And... Uh, uh, not only for him to run, but to get him elected as well. And what does that say about her as a leader? That was, I, was, I mean, she just filleted him, you know, like some salmon out of Lake Michigan. You say, we'll see how it goes from here for her. I do another podcast called Hacks on Tap. We had Susan Page on there, who's just written a book about Pelosi. And I asked whether she thought Pelosi would be the speaker by the end of this term. And she said, I think it's very possible that she gets Biden's, the big pieces of Biden's agenda done uh, this year, uh, and that by the end of this term, she could be the ambassador to the Vatican, the ambassador to Italy. Would that surprise you? Not at all. Uh, the, the challenge is there's no, there's no obvious heir apparent on the Democrat side. You know, lawyers the same age as Pelosi. Flyburn's even older. Uh, I don't think they're going to, they'd like to be in play, but I don't think they're in play. Uh, so, uh, well, once you get past those two, uh, it's going to be a wide open free for all in terms of who, uh, uh, who the next person could be. You talk about her command of the caucus. What, is, what do you think it's going to be like when she's gone? Her problems are going to happen before she's gone, because I think as this year goes on, she's going to have a very difficult time moving almost anything through the floor. And we got, listen, we got 50-50 Senate, almost a 50-50 House. And, uh, you know, partisan things don't happen in an environment like this. And so uh, if, if they want to get some things done, they're going to have to figure out uh, how to work with the Republicans to, uh, to move legislation to help the country. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Talk about Kevin McCarthy as a leader. You know, there was an anecdote uh, in, one, in some of the reporting. Maybe it was in the trial itself, the impeachment trial, but I, it's certainly in some of the reporting about a call from, uh, uh, between Trump and McCarthy on January 6th when these folks were storming the Capitol he, w- he was talking to the president, asking him to send uh, the National Guard in, and the president was sort of taunting him, and it was reported that McCarthy said, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? And that was very, very heated. Uh, a week later, he was on a plane down to Mar-a-Lago, you know, kissing the ring or whatever. What does that say? Well, listen, uh, those who uh, are in office and trying to govern have a very difficult job. And the last thing I want to do uh, is to be some has-been, uh, some Monday morning quarterback, making my suggestions about what they've done or what they should do, only making their job that much harder. And so, uh, listen, Kevin's a good guy. I've known him for 30 years. Uh, I knew him when he was a staffer on the Hill before he went back to California and ran uh, for the state house. Uh, but uh, he's got his hands full. All the leaders have their hands full, uh, given the state of politics today. So this was essentially the requirement of staying the leader, being the leader, going down there and making sure that his skirts were clean with Trump? Well, again, he's trying to figure out a way to hold the party together. And um, you got traditional Republicans. You've got uh, 
uh, the more Trump-aligned Republicans. And uh, at some point, there's going to be there's going to be some reckoning here. Uh, and so uh, we'll see how he does. What was your reaction to in that same sequence when Liz Cheney voted to impeach? And by the way, you said you thought the president should resign on January sixth after the insurrection there, and being a a man of the house, as it were, someone who spent a lot of your life there, I'm sure that was a painful thing to watch. It was. Uh, I only could watch it for about an hour, and it was. I was angry. I was upset and mad, uh, and I just couldn't watch it because you know I spent uh, uh, more than half of my career working in the Capitol. Uh, my my whole team worked in the Capitol, and uh, you know this is where we did the nation's business. And to see what was happening was uh, it was just. Uh, it was one of the darkest days in American history. And, uh, you know, several days later, I sent an email uh, to, uh, uh, to my, what they call Bainerland, uh, all my former staffers. And uh, there were about 500 of them who got this email. But I had made a statement, uh, oh, maybe six months earlier, when asked a question about the state of the Republican Party. And I said, I, I think Republicans are taking a nap. And so in this email, I reminded people I had said this. I said, but the nap has now turned into a nightmare. Uh, it's time for some people, time for us to speak out. And uh, I watched uh, the election. I watched what the president did in November of December. I kept hearing all these claims about election fraud, but I never saw a piece of evidence. I kept looking. Uh, where's the evidence? Never saw it. Uh, and frankly, uh, on January 6th, uh, there are a lot of people who went to Washington uh, at his urging uh, with all that nonsense that uh, he kept putting out there, uh, which uh, was just not true. Now, I think he abused the trust and loyalty of the people who voted for him uh, by standing up there for several months, making these, these invalid claims. And so, uh, it was a horrendous mess. Uh, but uh, I do think that uh, uh, that he is uh, partly, mostly, I don't know, pick a, pick a, a name for it, uh, responsible for what happened on the 6th. He, he was, uh, and you've made this point, that he was setting this thing up in advance because he said for months before the election that it was going to be rigged. Yep. And, and uh, so it was clear what, what he was doing. And I know you, you've talked about this a lot, but you voted for him. If he was guilty of the thing after the fact, and he was doing the same thing before the fact, why vote for him? Well, you know, uh, elections are about choices. And uh, while people may not like uh, the selection of federal judges that uh, the president put forward, uh, I thought uh, they did a very good job with the judges. I thought, frankly, the overall of our tax code uh, was going to bring more economic growth. Uh, there are a lot of good policies the administration uh, put forward. And frankly, uh, given uh, uh, as much as I know Joe Biden, love Joe Biden, uh, the fact is the Democrat Party that uh, he became the nominee of uh, is far to the left of where Joe Biden is. And uh, I'm afraid all those good policies were going to get thrown under the, thrown under the bus. And so, uh, you know, I held my nose and did what I did. Knowing what you know now, would you have done it the same way? No, I don't know. So Liz Cheney, she, she spoke out, and the next thing that happens is there is a caucus meeting ostensibly to discipline Marjorie Taylor Greene for the crazy QAnon things that she was espousing. That did not happen, but there was a, a vote to try and oust Liz Cheney for what what was your reaction all that? You know her well. I know her very well. And uh, listen, she's a rock-solid uh, conservative Republican. Uh, she's just not crazy. And, uh, you know, this there's a lady who did what she had to do, what she felt was right. And, uh, you know, some people were going to punish her. Uh, there's, there are well, a lot Trump of is one of them. He's out to punish her. Well, listen, there are a lot of votes in somebody's career. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I cast some votes that some of my constituents or maybe some of my colleagues weren't happy with. Uh, but there's the result. You throw them out of the leadership. I think it's crazy. Uh, but she, frankly, won handily. And what about her seat? You feel confident she's going to hang on to her seat? Yeah, I, I feel very good about it. 
So uh, on this other issue, this point you raised, because it's, it's really important, there never was or has been evidence of this widespread fraud that Trump talked about. And you got legislatures all over the country now passing laws to address this fictional fraud. I mean, it is it is cited as an example of why changes are needed in absentee voting and and, and other elements of uh, of how we vote. What's your feeling about that? Well, listen, every state legislature, and I was a member of the Ohio legislature in the eighties. Uh, but after every election, you know, you, you learn things. Uh, you find holes in the system or things that don't work very well. And clearly, uh, with the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of changes to how votes were cast. And, uh, you know, some of them caused by court, some of them caused by the Secretary of State. And, uh, and so there were, there were a lot of different things that went on in, in this last election. So, of course, the state houses are going to take a look at the election and try to figure out, all right, how do we make this better? Uh, you know, I, uh, this Georgia law, when you look at it, they really, didn't, they really didn't do much of anything. And this outrage about the Georgia law, I'm just still scratching my head because you know, a lot of people are talking about it who know none of the facts. Uh, and uh, I just, it's, it's, it's anyway... Uh, it's a it's a normal process that's going on. Just on the Georgia thing, you know, one of the things that struck I, I don't disagree with you that some of the things have been, you know, it's not the new Jim Crow, but it's clearly designed. It's not designed to uh, ensure that the largest number of people participate in elections. And part of it was to hand over, essentially hand over to the state legislature kind of supervisory or oversight power that would allow them to overrule local election authorities. That You can't think that's a good idea. Wow, listen, I'm not, I don't live in Georgia. I don't really know. <laughs> well, you raised system. it. That's why I asked. I don't know their system inside now. Uh, but listen, I, I've, been, I've been involved in enough election disputes uh, I used to be in the House Administration Committee. We used to look into election uh, disputes. And, uh, you know, I tell you what, there were some places around the country that had local election officials. Uh, I, I, was, I was appalled. Now, I don't know, again, I don't know what the system is in, in Georgia, trying to have greater accountability uh, by the election officials. It was a good idea now how they do it. That's, that's their issue. Let's go back to the Republican Party, because the question comes up, is Trump, I mean, you were dealing with the knuckleheads you define in your book are the Tea Partiers who came after 2010, and they're the next generation that followed them. So the question comes up, is Trump sort of the the cause of the current state of the Republican Party, or is he, was he just the next natural step? Because I think back to Sarah Palin, you know, I think back to birtherism, of course, which he was a part of. I mean, this thing's been brewing for a long time, hasn't it? David, most of the so-called Tea Party types uh, became good, solid Republicans. Now, there are some of them who became what I'll call knuckleheads, uh, the My Way or the Highway Caucus. It was all, they wanted it all their way or they weren't going to play ball off. And, you know, I'm sorry, but that's just not the way our country works. But uh, Donald Trump uh, was a symptom of uh, the political, the breakdown in our political system. He's just a symptom of it. Just like uh, AOC and some of her squad are a continuing symptom of, uh, of uh, what's going on in our political discourse these days. I mean, you know, you can go out there and call for defunding the police. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry, but uh, the world doesn't work that way. Both parties are going through this. In fairness, AOC was on here. She was very emphatic about that she never said that and she doesn't believe that. But anyway, the point is on uh, Trump. What happens now with the Republican Party? Because, you know, you talked about information before and how people get their information you know, a solid majority of Republicans feel that the last election was fraudulent in polling. You know, you got people uh, today who, um, you know, on the vaccines, on a whole range of other things who are they're responding in, in, in sort of 
And you can say on both sides on some issue, but tribal fashion. And a lot of it is based on, certainly on the Republican side, on kind of the stuff that you describe in the book, crazy conspiracy theories and so on. How do you, how do people like you, how do you reclaim the Republican Party that you believe in? That's pretty straightforward to me. Republicans have to go back to the principles of the Republican Party. You know, we're the party of uh, fiscal responsibility, uh, the, the party of uh, free and uh, fair trade. And uh, you can on the whole long list of what it means to be Republican. And we need to get away from all uh, the personalities and uh, uh, the interest groups and start talking about what we believe in as a party. I happen to believe that, you know, uh, two-thirds of America uh, are our, our audience in terms of attracting votes. And I think uh, the principles of being a Republican uh, are, are sound. They just have to go back and continue to do it. But those aren't the prevailing, if you poll the Republican Party, those aren't the prevailing views of rank and file Republicans. I mean, during the Trump year, $7 trillion in additional debt, he was not a free trader. Uh, he was anti immigration reform, which was a principle of the Republican Party. Oh, when yeah. you were... oh, yeah. So, uh, anyway, my point is, is that if I were in D.C., uh, I'd be talking about principles, principles, principles. And I'd be, I'd be looking for ways to enunciate those uh, in ways that the American people could identify. Uh, it's, uh, it's frankly what I did uh, most of my political career. Uh, it's frankly, it's time for those in Washington to get back to it. Yeah. And can you survive? I mean, if you're a leader, can you survive like that? Can you survive espousing the principles that you... <laughs> That's the $64,000 question. Yeah. Well, which, which may be why you're looking like a happy guy down in Marco Island now and not tussling with your caucus anymore. Well, I was never going to be around there as some old guy. I just wasn't. Uh, I, I just I made it my decision early in my political career that I wasn't uh, going to be one of those old guys tottering around the, the Congress who didn't know where he was or who he was. And so, uh, you know, I served 25 years. Uh, I was 66 when I left, and, and uh, I'm very satisfied. I wouldn't, frankly, change anything about my career. And I wouldn't, I'd have, a, have one ounce of remorse or regret about how I left and when I left. But perfect. You were 66 when you left, and you look like you're 63 now, so it's probably a... <laughs> probably a good a good thing so one of the things that you early in your career you were uh, one of your initiatives was to uh shut down you know head shops places that were selling drug paraphernalia pipes and things like that you're in the weed business now yeah. that's a that's an evolution yeah it's a, quite an evolution but you know you learn a few things along the way one this idea that uh, marijuana was a gateway drug which is what i was led to believe Early in my uh, career, uh, over over time, I found out that just really wasn't a fact. And then uh, you know when you're when you're a public official, elected public official, uh, you know you get your ears are pretty tuned uh, to what's happening at home and on the ground. And you know I saw state after state after state uh, legalizing uh, the use of cannabis in some form. And uh, you know by the time I left office, I thought to myself, hey. You know, uh, I drink red wine. I smoke cigarettes. Somebody wants to have a joint. What the hell do I care? And uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, I was approached to serve on the board of this cannabis company. And uh, so I thought, I'm going to do a little research here. And, uh, you know, I started looking into the medicinal use of cannabis, kids with seizures, uh, soldiers with PTSD or, or chronic pain problems. Uh, and I got down here in Florida. and. Uh, Everybody and their brother, older folks, want to talk to you about cannabis because they've got all these aches and pains and arthritis. And so I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this. And I knew it would make news. I didn't realize it would be uh, one of these uh, sentinel moments in the history of the <laughs> cannabis industry, uh, which apparently it has been. Yeah, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been really, really interesting to watch this industry evolve. But you haven't sampled the product, huh? No, no, I'm not. Uh, like I said, I've got red wine. I've got cigarettes. Every once in a while, I have a glass of bourbon. You know, I, 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 don't, I, don't, need, I don't need the cannabis. 
I have to ask you about the days before you left and the visit of the Pope, because it obviously was a hugely emotional thing for you. And it was the coda on your career. That was, I think, the day after you announced that you would be leaving. Talk about that. Well, I tried for 20 years to get a Pope to come to the Capitol and address a joint session of Congress. Why is that so important to you? Uh, Because it never happened before. And uh, here's the Pope, uh, you know, the head of the Catholic Church, but the head of state, the head of the Vatican. And uh, I just thought it would be, I thought it would be a good thing to do. But finally, uh, uh, Pope Francis uh, accepted my invitation. And uh, after he left that day, my phone was ringing. Democrats, Republicans, House, Senate, everybody was thrilled to death. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't know. I've been here 25 years, and this might be the happiest day I've seen here. And I was going to leave at the end of 2015. I was going to announce it in November. But I thought uh, later on that afternoon, I thought, well, hell, it's not going to get any better than it was today. I'll just do it tomorrow. So that's how it happened. Pope did a very nice job. He was very gracious. And uh, there's some great stories in the book, uh, Pope stories, uh, that uh, I I just had a wonderful time with him, I can tell you that. Yeah, he's an extraordinary personality. But you also, you were clearly moved by it. I mean, I know you're you're famously, it's not hard to move you to tears. I, I suspect you <laughs> I had a pu- puppy chow commercial. But tell me why it, that some of it had must have had to do with being raised Catholic and, and, and living Catholic. You, you, you know, you talk about it in your book and what Catholicism is and to you. And what did that moment mean to you that would, that brought you to tears? You know, I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic university. It was an older boy. And, uh, and you know, having a Pope there, uh, doesn't get any better than that. In 1995, after I sent the first letter out, somebody in the press got a hold of the letter, and um, and there was an article in the Cincinnati newspapers about about me inviting the Pope uh, to address the joint session of Congress. My mother called. First, my mother never called me, <laughs> uh, never. So uh, that was uh, the first startle. My mother called me, and she said, "John, when the Pope accepts." I'm there. Understand? <laughs> yes, Mom. Yes, Mom. I, I, I got the message loud and clear. <laughs> and so, yeah, for me as a Catholic, Nancy Pelosi, at the time the minority leader as a Catholic, it was a big moment for both of us. Just as we go out, Mr. Speaker, what do you want people to say about John Boehner? He was just a regular guy and a big job. And you know, someone asked me this morning, I give a rotary speech and asked me what... Uh, I was most proud of over the 25 years I was in Washington. I said, well, that's pretty simple. I walked out of there after 25 years, pretty much the same jackass that walked in. <laughs> I never wanted to be somebody. I just wanted to be me. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've watched people over there get an ounce of power and turn into somebody that you've never even recognized before. I was never going to let that happen to me. And uh, I'm just a regular guy. I had a big job. and try to do my best every day, and was nice to people along the way. Uh, well, you were always cordial to me, and I appreciated that, and it's good to see you, uh, John Boehner. The, the book is On the House, a Washington memoir. It's a great read. I recommend it to everyone. Thanks so much. All right, David. Good to see you. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 